This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear His voice come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your word, that in it we get a glimpse of who You are, who You're about, and an invitation to see who we were made to be the lives that you're calling us to. Open our eyes to the beauty and majesty of Jesus here this morning, moved by your spirit and point us to him in Jesus' name. So I think we have a complicated idea or complicated relationship with the idea of justice and judgment. Um, on the one hand, we really want justice. We long for it to happen. When someone is wronged, when a criminal action happens, especially a heinous one, and justice doesn't happen in the court. Something within us cries out that something has gone wrong. Something's wrong with our world. When there's a broken relationship in a family, and someone has wronged somebody else, and it doesn't get, uh, there's no restitution, there's no fix. Something within us cries out. We want justice to happen because justice is a profound good thing. So that's on the one hand. We long for it. But on the other hand, when it comes to us personally, I think we're really afraid of the idea of justice or the idea of judgment. Maybe I'm preaching to myself, but the idea that we would face uh, and have to answer for the things we've done and thought and said is a terrifying one. I remember being a kid growing up in church, and I had some well-meaning Sunday school teachers, but ones that told me things like, if you uh, confess your sins, God will forgive you. But if you're walking out of the door and you get in the car and you're on your way home and you have a lustful thought and you get hit by train, well time there, you're going to split the gates of hell wide open. Um, and so I grew up with that kind of reverberating in my head, even though I had also heard the gospel of grace, even though I had also heard about the Jesus who forgives all sins, and that reverberated in my mind. My heart kind of latched on to that. So, on the one hand, we long for justice, or at least I do, in the world, maybe in a general sense. When it comes to myself, I don't really want it to happen. <laughs> I don't want amnesty for me, uh, at least. So, justice is one of those things we long for that we also fear. Like I said, a complicated relationship. In our passage this morning, we're seeing the words of Jesus at the end of this time of teaching that he's doing. And Jesus speaks about this very topic. He speaks about justice by speaking about final judgment. He's looking forward to the future, the day of resurrection, the culmination of God's work in our world when all who died will be raised again in body. And as he says, they'll stand before him. And those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. But what I want to do is pause here. Because we may shiver at the idea of final judgment. But I want to pause and stop here. And think about the words of Jesus. And think about how our relationship to the idea of justice and final judgment doesn't have to be one of terror. But in Jesus it can be one not to fear. But something to actually delight in the thought. So, let's set context. Let's talk about final judgment, the world that Jesus would have been speaking into, and how this would have landed on the ears of the people um, who were hearing him 
And then the people who would have been receiving this gospel, you know, 70 years later, 60 years later when it was written. The first century that Jesus lived in was, and where the Christian church initially grew, was a fascinating one. And there were basically two extremes that permeated cultural ideas about what was the good life, what it meant to live a good life. On the one hand, you had one that was more uh, inspired by a, a Greek uh, culture, a Greek mindset that taught that the material world, our flesh, our bodies, was evil. In fact, they even called our bodies prisons for our souls. And, uh, and they would say, for the most part, it didn't really matter what you did in your body. Um, and when we die, it's pretty much it, as far as we can know. And so what it meant to follow the good life is you can maybe make a mark. Your descendants will be proud of you, and they'll talk about you when you're gone. But as far as you go, you might just be a memory in people's minds. Um, I think this is best embodied if you, you can actually go back and find pictures of it. The, one of the most common epitaphs written on gravestones at the time of the first century was this. I wasn't, so I didn't exist. I was, I am not, I don't care. It's a bumper sticker, right? I wasn't, I was, I am not, now, I don't care. Into this mindset, think about how the idea that uh, the Christianity brings into the world spoke a resounding counter note. Christian church said, who you are matters. What you do matters, and what is done to you matters. Not, I was not, I was, I am not, I don't care. Who you are matters, what you do matters, and what is done to you matters. As Christianity spread into the wider Roman Empire, this was one of the distinguishing marks, a recognition that God made all things good. Physical bodies weren't evil. God made all things good. And part of Jesus' work is he's redeeming his creation as far as the curse of sin is found. So it's not just about uh, escaping the prison of our bodies and ascending in more and more knowledge into a place where our souls are at peace, some kind of like nirvana idea. Who we are matters, soul and body. And as part of their preaching of the gospel of Jesus, the first Christians, they created communities that didn't just care for people's minds. When they planted churches, they didn't plant schools. It wasn't just a time when lesson was in session and people came in and they talked about concepts, which is kind of ironic because that's what I'm doing right now. But what they did is they created communities that cared for the whole person, not just schools to teach ideas. Churches weren't just places where they came once a week to talk about spiritual ideas, but there were places where people lived and shared um, if you read through the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4, this very first little spark of the church firing up in Jerusalem, it says that the effects of the gospel was that in the church there were no poor among them. They could say that the effects of the gospel and what it had done there in Jerusalem is that there wasn't a single person. And that's not that the gospel was only received by people who had a lot of money in their pocket. The idea was here. People had been brought into a community with each other. And they said, you matter. And so when you can't pay your bills, I'm going to sell some land to pay your bill. When you lose your job and you can't put food on the table, you're eating at my house. 
There was no poor among them. And this is significant because you can look through the ancient Greek world and they set up schools in all these cities and there's teachers and they come around and they listen to this teacher but the church set up communities of life together that told folks you matter what you do matters and what happens to you matters. So in history, Christians set up the first what we would recognize now as hospitals. In fact, there was a woman late first century named Hermione of Ephesus, not uh, Harry Potter, uh, actually. Hermione of Ephesus, she's one of my heroes. She's the daughter of Philip, who we meet in the book of Acts. After her dad died, she was wondering what she should do with her life. She was actually elderly at that point. So she moved from where she lived to the city of Ephesus because she thought the gospel writer John was still alive. He was the last apostle, and she thought, well, what I'll do is I'll go to where he is and kind of help out. When she got there, she found out he had died too. She said, well, what am I going to do now? <laughs> I got my nest egg in my pocket. Uh, they wouldn't call it that. What she did was she set up the very first hospital where people who were uh, dealing with sicknesses who were cast off everywhere else would come. She didn't accept any payment whatsoever. It was entirely funded by the church there and by gifts people gave. And no one was turned away at the door. Absolutely no one. She told those people who came in that who you are matters, what you do matters, and what's done to you matters. Christians established the first communities where the poor and the indigent were invited to find a home. In fact, there was a mini crisis in, I think, the 2nd century, because they had established, well, a little bit later on, but they established what we would call now monasteries, these communities where people live together and they farm and they uh, do acts of service and stuff like that. They had so many people flooding into the monasteries, because this was the place where, if nowhere else, they could find a, a home. That the, 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 the pastors were like, I don't know what to do. I don't know if these people are actually accepting Jesus or they just need the place to... Eat. There was this mini crisis to figure out like, how to navigate that. And they, they did it well. They did it well to carry off for people. Christians were seen as especially odd because of their care for the bodies of the dead, actually. You can look in the, the 4th century, one of the emperors, uh, Julian, <laughs> terrible name, Julian the Apostate, because he had been raised Christian and rejected as an adult. And he was an emperor over Rome. And we have a surviving letter where he wrote to one of his the people under him there, like a governor. And he was saying, we've got to start doing more for the poor folks in the Roman Empire because the Christians are putting us to shame. Because they don't just care for their own people. They care for our folks. And he even says, I'm paraphrasing, they're a little bit crazy because they care for the dead bodies that we cast off into care for the bodies, they bury them, they treat them with dignity and respect. Part of all of this, to get back to my point, is that there was a fundamental conviction that bodies mattered, that they weren't something that would just be cast away at death, that bodies would be resurrected. The culmination of God's work, or as Jesus says here in John 5, the time is coming, and all who are in the graves will hear His voice, Jesus' voice, and come out. Again, no, uh, I wasn't, I was, I am not, I don't care for Christians. It is this, we are people created by the God of love to be loved. We are people created in the image of God with inherent dignity and worth. And He is for all of who we are. Death is not the end of our matters. What you do matters, what is done to you matters. 
That's what talk of final judgment in that first century world hit. Uh, that's how it hit ears there. Now on the flip side, on the other side, we had religious ideas of judgment. Primarily uh, rooted in kind of the, the Jewish um, rabbinic tradition. On the other side, we had the Jewish world where, that Jesus inhabited, and they believed in a God of justice. A God of justice. And for the most part, they would agree, yes, people matter, what they do matter, what is done to them matters, and God is going to visit this earth with judgment, and He's going to wipe out the sinners. He's going to wipe out and the idea here is that, that life is kind of like a big test. God's the teacher. We're the students in the classroom. And the hope is that we do enough to pass the test. Maybe we don't make 100, but we make 71. And we've got we to make sure we, we edge in. God's not going to grade on the curve. We've got to edge in. We've got to get that 71 to get the D. Yeah, God was gracious and kind, but God ultimately judged based on works. To actually quote... Uh, a first century work called the Wisdom of Solomon. God has tested them and found them worthy of himself. The author would have been speaking about himself and his community. God has tested us and he's found us worthy of himself. Or another uh, quote, God loves no one but those who dwell in wisdom. God's love was there, but you needed to be really good needed to prove your worth to God or else. Yet here comes Christianity rushing into this world, teaching that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, a man crucified unjustly by the Roman government and cahoots with the Jewish religious leaders, that this man has risen from the dead and that this changes everything. Here comes Christianity teaching that this Jesus died in the place not of those who dwelled in wisdom, Died not in the place of those who were found worthy in God's sight, but died, as the Apostle Paul writes in the book of Romans, for the ungodly. Here comes Christianity saying that in his unjust death, Jesus flipped it around and actually passed judgment on the injustice of our world. And if we come to him by faith, our sins can be forgiven. We can be reconciled to God and justified in His sight. If we cast ourselves on the mercy of God and Jesus, we can be washed clean. Not that we then get marked a 71 and we barely pass the class. That's not the idea. We get the A-plus that Jesus earned. We confess in our, our, uh, confession of, uh, from our confession of faith here. Justified in God's sight because the righteousness of Jesus, His lived righteousness, His doing of right is credited to us. And we receive that by faith. And we rest in that. We are righteous in God's sight because of the love of Jesus. Not just making a 71, but giving the eight Or as Jesus answers in John 6, I actually didn't print that in this that I meant to. The next chapter in the Gospel of John, he, Jesus is teaching again. And so people ask him, okay, you're speaking about those who are going to be raised and they're going to be judged according to their works. What are the works that God requires? What are the works that God requires that we might be righteous in His sight? He says this, Jesus answered, this is chapter 6, verse 21, 
29. The work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. The work of God is to believe. Not to do a bunch of stuff to get a 71 on the test. The work of God, accepted in his son, is to believe in the one that he has sent. To abandon hope and all the other things we chase after. To cast ourselves on the sure mercy of God. One of the earliest accusations that the Christian church faced, one that uh, the, the epistle to the Romans, if you ever read through, is answering directly, is the accusation that if the gospel is true, that God is unjust. That if this is really true, that God justifies the ungodly by faith, then God is a monster. Because He's leaving terrible sins unpunished. The idea that the ungodly, those who really messed up, not just stubbed their toe and said a cuss word, but people like the Apostle Paul, who had been virtually religious terrorists, could come to God and by faith be righteous in His sight, but that would make Him unjust. And that's what our assurance of pardon passage here in Romans 3 is answering directly. In Jesus, as it says, uh, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. It wasn't God just pretending our sin wasn't there. It wasn't God saying, well, I don't have wrath against your sin. It was God visiting the wrath that our sins deserve on the head of His Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus didn't walk into that blindly. He took it on voluntarily out of joy of knowing that His grace would come to us, that we would be set free from sin. And in Jesus, it says right here, His righteousness at the present is demonstrated at the present time. And in Jesus, He is just, so He has rightly punished sin. And he's also the justifier of those who come uh, to Him in faith. God was not unjust in forgiving us because He had punished sins. That's what the cross is. He punished sins by carrying them Himself. One theologian called it self-satisfaction through self-substitution. God was not creating a different basis of judgment in Christ. We are still judged by works. Not a single person will not be judged by works. But for those of us who come to faith by Christ, we're not judged by our own works. We're judged by His. And what a wonderful place to stand. What a wonderful place to stand. As I said earlier, as grew, when I grew up, I lived in absolute terror of the idea of final judgment. Because I could fool everybody around me with a charming smile. I'm not saying that I have a charming smile. But, and, you know, if you grow up in church, you learn enough religious lingo. You learn how to kind of, for lack of a better word, fool people. You're not really as bad as you seem. And I remember many nights laying in bed thinking, I think I'm pleading for forgiveness and listing, trying to list every sin that I can think of. And then laying there thinking, I've left some out. I know I have. I know I had. And I had this mind, this picture in my mind that I would stand before God one day and would say, You did a lot of confessing, but you left that one. And it would sneak up in you know, this courtroom scene. 
And I'd stand at the end because I forgot that one little guy. That one son. The thought that I would have to answer for every thought or indeed was a source of profound anxiety. Because while, while I could hide behind a semi-religious charm around everyone else, I could not hide from God. But at its core, as we've mentioned, final judgment, the doctrine of that in Christ is a declaration of who we are matters. What we do matters and what's done to us matters. And because of Jesus, because of Jesus, that does not have to be something that we fear at all. At all. Because we're not going to get to final judgment and God steam us up and name everything we've ever done to shame us and then rush in at the end and say, no, nope, but I'll take you in because of Jesus. That's not how it works. When we come to Jesus, we are washed clean. Our sins were cast as far away from us as the east is from the west. This is the Old Testament imagery. Our sins are cast into the bottom of the sea, never to be seen again. What a glorious truth, friends. What a wonderful... No wonder they call the gospel good news. And so final judgment, the idea that we stand before God, is not a thing to be despised or a thing to be feared. In Jesus, we can look to the idea of final judgment and hope. Because it's not going to be a visiting of shame upon us. It's going to be a time when all that is wrong will be made right. When all that is crooked will be made straight. Where we'll see the power and the effects of sin absolutely destroyed in every sense. And we stand today as people who have been freed from the penalty of sin by faith. We're being progressively freed from the power of sin as God is transforming us from the inside out. But what's awaiting us in the new heavens and new earth? So we're going to be freed from even the presence of sin and its effects. And that's what final judgment is. It's the arrival of God on earth to do justice and to do it rightly. And to receive those who have placed their faith in Him and the grace that He already has for us. It'll just be literally the air we breathe. Not literally, I don't mean physically. Um, I am righteous in God's sight, and that's a gift. And that's what serves for me as a springboard. We open in our call to worship with words from Micah 6. What does God require of us? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with Him. These are beautiful words. But apart from the life-giving grace of Jesus, they're words of condemnation. Why? Because we don't act justly. Because we don't love mercy. We don't walk humbly with God. But in Christ, the fact that I'm righteous in God's sight, that serves as the firm foundation, the springboard into me being a person that does act justly, that does love mercy, that does walk, with, walk humbly with God. This righteousness that is mine, justification, justification by faith, not by words, comes the springboard for me to walk into actual good deeds, actual righteous deeds, because I know I'm not trying to earn a paycheck. I got all the money in the bank I'll ever need, <laughs> spiritually. I'm not trying to earn a paycheck. I'm walking in the delight of the Father for me. So as I said, it becomes the springboard for us to live out those words of Micah 6. We can walk this path because Jesus already has. 
We can stand in Him and with Him because He's already stood with us. So how do we apply this? I want to give a couple of items of thought as we, we leave this idea this morning. The first one is, we can, like that early church, live lives that tell other people with words and actions that who they are matters. And what they do matters. And what's done to them matters. As I've said, that's what the doctrine of final judgment means. That victims of sin, those who have been oppressed, those who have been abused, will be vindicated. Because while sin can be hid from, hidden from my eyes and the eyes of other people, and injustices can happen in courtrooms all over this world and in homes all over this world, God sees all. The innocent will be vindicated. Those who have been wronged will be seen and it will be acknowledged. Because it's seen and acknowledged by God. The truth will be seen and acknowledged. The second is this. We walk in knowledge that injustice here is not the final word. This is akin to the first one. Justice will be done. And we don't know all things that God does. And the truth is, either sin will be paid for by Jesus, for those who have come to Him by faith, for those who have wronged others, those who have oppressed others, those who have used other people, will answer for you. They will. Justice will be done. Injustices are not forgotten. And here's the takeaway. Probably the biggest takeaway for us as a church is we live in this world where justice still uh, turns its ugly head all over the place. As a church, we hold the door of grace open to everyone. We fling the doors of our church as wide open as Jesus has flung the doors of his kingdom. Knowing that even the most wicked person we can imagine can be justified in God's sight of faith can turn away from their sin and find a changed heart. We know that because it's true of us We never move on to suddenly becoming the righteous people who look down at other people. That's why I said in our call to worship, fellow sinners, we are welcome here because we are never a museum for the saints to display our actions so that other people would say, oh, that's beautiful. The church always remains a hospital and a home for sinners, a place where we can come to find grace in short grace, time. So as a church, whether it's this church or you move on to another church one day or whatever, we hold the door open. Even people we really don't like, even people who have wronged us, not to walk in foolishness, not to be a doormat, we hold the door open. Because there is a profound grace in Christ that can reach to the deepest parts of sin in this world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glories of this gospel that in you, in you we can find forgiveness. In you we can be righteous in your sight, not because we've done anything to earn it, but because we cast ourselves on your sure mercy in Christ, that we can be righteous in your sight by faith. Lord, make this the center of who we are. Make this the thing we think of when we think about ourselves. When we think about you. Even when we mess up. <laughs> even when we sin. And we are selfish. 
Make this the place we run immediately. Not to sin and run back to it as if it's a license to go and do whatever we want. But Lord, to know in all of who we are. That we are yours. And there's not a final judgment coming one day where sin's going to sneak up on us and God, you say, well, I forgot about that. No. That we stand now, we stand tomorrow, we stand forever. The grace that's ours, Christ. I pray all of this. In His matchless and wonderful name. Amen.